Welcome to the Ad Astra podcast. Today we have with us researcher Liana Saif. She has researched and wrote, uh, been written and researching a lot of things on uh, Islamic uh, esotericism and uh, occult philosophies. So she has a lot of uh, <laughs> a lot of work done in this area. Um, She's currently a postdoctoral uh, um, fellow at the RC project Phil and which explores the philosophy of Al-Andalus, in medieval Al-Andalus, the transmissions, uh, the impacts, and all of that uh, dynamics. And it's a project which is uh, sponsored by the Université Catholique de Louvain mm -hmm. and in partnership with the Warburg Institute. Um, welcome. Welcome, Liana. <laughs> welcome, Liana. Thank you. Glad to have you here. I have us. to say it's a great pleasure to have you since you were my teacher and colleague. At <laughs> and it's good, to, it's good to see you again. It's great to see you too. Thank you for having me. It's a great pleasure. Yes. So, um, well, there's a lot of things that we, we want to, to, to ask you and, and to talk, uh, talk with you. Um, but um, please um, let us know a little bit about your work and first uh, in your research work, your your objectives in your research work? Sure. Um, well, I started, I started uh, working on the Islamic influences on early modern occult philosophy. I did uh, my PhD on that subject and ultimately that led to um, the publication of, of my first monograph, the Arabic influences in early modern occult philosophy. So at the beginning I was uh, more Renaissance studies. I was looking at um, important figures in Renaissance occult philosophy, um, uh, such as Marsilio Ficino, Pico della Mirandola, Giordano Bruno, um, John Dee, Agrippa, and also tackling some um, medieval uh, figures such as Albertus Magnus and even Thomas Aquinas. So um, uh, the emphasis was um, on the way in which Islamic, esoteric, and occult ways of knowing affected and influenced um, European ideas um, uh, in occult philosophy. And um, it turns out that astrology and astral magic um, had a great impact, particularly on uh, the philosophization of uh, occult sciences in the European um, early modern period. And um, after that, um, I mean, this experience uh, it drove it closer in my mind that there's a lot left to be done in the Islamic side of things. Mm. Um, at that point, there wasn't a lot of people who were doing research on um, the Islamic material uh, for several reasons, uh, one of which is quite simple. Um, the manuscripts are, you know, despite them being everywhere around us in Europe, but um, 
there wasn't enough support of the topic as a legitimate academic topic for uh, people to investigate it. Um, the, the occult and the esoteric was still looked at from a positivist post-enlightenment lens where it measured the value of the research that we do in terms of that binary of rationality versus superstition. And in general, our material was pulled more towards the irrational and the superstitious. And the Islamic material, even though we did have like Orientalist research dealing with it, but it's often either through um, some sort of exoticization or um, trying to find value by looking at how much Greek material was preserved in the Islamic material and, and kind of like distract us from how original uh, these materials were in themselves and how the indeed the, the ancient material um, um, became part of an Islamic way of thinking rather than the Islamic material being just a vessel of transmission that then gave the valuable material uh, to, to, to the West in the Renaissance and then Islam and Muslims became irrelevant, unless politically. So, so you know, I, 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 I wanted at that stage to start paying attention to uh, the Islamic material uh, beyond just a super like philological attention, but actually look at the epistemological foundations that are historically contingent at especially the early medieval period, which is what my, my specialty from the 8th to the 12th century. And, um, and after that, I just focused uh, on, on, on that material mostly um, and um, never looked back. But I do miss the Renaissance stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So the, the, what you just focused is uh, one of the uh, probably one of the big misunderstandings about uh, Islamic culture and specifically Islamic astrology and Islamic hermeticism is that um, people think that um, still think uh, that the the, um, the Islamic culture was like a vessel, as you said, and then has contributed with nothing relevant, mm -hmm. which mm -hmm. is, I think, extremely unfair. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for, yes. for sure. We're exploring all the contributions. <laughs> uh, mm. Yes, it's, it's even even in astrology, uh, the, you still have a lot. You have a huge, undeniable Arabic influence. Uh, mm. Arabic influence in the in the in the practice of astrology in the West, and still there's a, there are, there are the Greeks. <laughs> and there's the Renaissance. There's the Renaissance and the Latin and. and and then there's this, this uncomfortable uh, area, very, area in between. Yeah, and then decline, like that decline narrative, you know. Yeah, they, uh, they say the same yes. about Middle Ages yeah. in general. It's like yeah. the Dark Ages. Yeah. And so yeah. this is an idea that should be really clarified, yeah, no, unintended. Yeah, and, and, and restructured. Uh, it's, I think we're still suffering from that um, denial and, and expurging of Arabic supposedly Arabic influences in, mm. in knowledge, uh, yeah. in the astrology specifically, that happened in, in 16th in century, yes. late 15th, 16th century. And I think it 
has been so ingrained in the in the in the um, the nice. mindset and and the history that we still haven't got rid of it completely. Mm. No, and um, I mean in 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 the realm of academia, these narratives have been challenged for a long time, and you know the the decline narrative is generally unaccepted right now. But it's but but the ramification of that way of thinking extends beyond academia. You know, people in general still adopt that um, idea that Islam was once great in the golden age when you know we had the Greek sciences and when we translated, and then after the 12th century, um, things started declining and there was no production of either decent astronomical, astrological, or, or any scientific uh, material when in fact science, you know, the, 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 a lot of scholars have shown that that is not the case, whether it was history of science. So uh, Professor Sonia Prentches has highlighted that in the terms of the occult sciences, Matthew Melvin Kushki has written about Persianate uh, scientific production in different contexts. You have Noah Gardner who talked about the Mamluk uh, context as well, and 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 so this has been, you know, be, it, it's it's been challenged, mm -hmm. and we continue to challenge it. But because astrology has that power to uh, reach people from beyond academia more than let's just say physics or even mm -hmm. astrology. It, it, it fascinates people because of the power of the stars. We look up and we start giving it meaning, whether we believe in astrology or, or not. That's just how it is. The, the universe is so majestic and unbelievably unfathomable mm -hmm. that we're going to look up and we're going to give it meaning and it's going to give us meaning back and we're going to interpret it whether we're astrologers or not. So because astrology has this power, it's important to take those narratives that are challenged in academia and put it out there so that people can understand better the value of, of the science of the stars, rather than just like astronomy and astrology. It was, you know, the science of the stars. Um, and one of the things that I like about what you do is that you highlight these processes, these, these, the importance of these medieval techniques in interpreting our relationship with the universe around us. Um, and that return to this medieval mindset is not something that we should be afraid of because it's the middle ages you know? <laughs> it's you know we use medieval to this day you know oh that's so medieval but but it can also mean a time of um different way of thinking or different epistemological approaches that we're co-present with each other. Absolutely, mm -hmm. absolutely. Right? So they were not condemned by a binary that has a lot of colonial baggage as well, an imperialistic baggage. They had their own baggage, like it's not, but in terms of that 
return to a place where the act of living is understood as the act of interpreting from different perspectives. I think there's a lot of value in that. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, I always say uh, to people that uh, if we learn and understand that astrology was not something, not only something that people did, like they believed in this and they some practice, but also a way of understanding the universe mm -hmm. ourselves. And this can coexist. And in fact, it can contribute to our life in the 21st century. We mm. don't need to be less rational or whatever, intelligent. We just need to understand and change from one mindset to the other. And that will make us more complete as humans. Mm. So uh, when you say this uh, about medieval knowledge or about, uh, about Islamic medieval knowledge specifically, I think it is such a, a loss if we just ignore it. And I know in academia, does, it, this it doesn't happen, but even in everyday life, for educated people, if they just could understand mm -hmm. how much we have of them in us, mm. you know, that would be very, very interesting. And yeah. your work is kind of absolutely crucial for this. Thank you. Thank you. I mean, it's, it's, I find value in, in this research exactly because it does challenge um it, it challenges me as you know someone who is active in 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 in, in our times it it poses a challenge i mean i i i i do ask questions about um what this could mean to me now with the way that science the discipline of science especially in the west um how it developed what does astrology mean to me i mean it's a great challenge but it can be a great challenge to have yeah. mm -hmm. to 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 look at the past through the stars um because it's not something that we're just doing now it's something that has been done you know, this, this, the stars and the sky are places where political aspirations are broadcast, mm -hmm. where personal fears and anxieties manifest, uh, where, yeah, scientific thinking is in action. Like the, the material that I study, especially the theoretical aspect of astrology when you read Abu Ma'ashar al-Balkhi or in Astral Magic when you read Ghayat al-Hakim, they are dealing with scientific questions such mm -hmm. as action at a distance. Mm -hmm. You know, the, you, you had Aristotle saying that action at a distance cannot happen. So you had these uh, Aristotelian astrologers having to grapple with that. Well, if action at a distance cannot happen, so how are the stars affecting? Why do the tides yeah. uh, take place? So despite <laughs> indeed them not being science in the way that we understand science now but they were still grappling mm -hmm. with now that is important to science today action at a distance intuition intuition is still a subject that is fiercely debated in medicine how much that is diagnosis and informed intuition mm -hmm. and for for example if you look at 
medieval liter literature and early modern literature on physiognomy, for example, intuition plays a really important role, hadz. And it comes with all the anxieties that you see in medical discourse right now. Because intuition is subjective, how do we make sure that when we're diagnosing, that we're closer to the truth as possible? So they were aware of these, these problems and these boundaries that are, you know, problems that are existent in, in modern science now. So in one way, they are different, but in other ways, they were the same, you know. And even like, I'm sure you know Al-Kindi's Deradis, right, on, on, on astral rays. And it was taking the um, field of magic, invocation, sacrifice, and all these elements that you see in, in magical practices, and trying to look at them as things, as acts that has potential to explain action at a distance. So for Al-Kindi, rays mm -hmm. must have been that vehicle, that physical vehicle, because, you know, adherence to also the Aristotelian mm -hmm. uh, idea that action at a distance doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. So sacrifice was understood powerful because of a network of rays, uh, not only astral but elementary, that the act of like killing an animal is going to cause a disruption in this network and therefore like action you know action immediate action is preserved mm -hmm. and um with abu mashar um taking the aristotelian notions of motion and heat and friction can establish that the stars influence because this motion produces heat produces mm -hmm. And therefore, you know, it's still the same questions that we ask today. Questions, yes. yes. And also, uh, not only scientific, but also everyday life. I'm thinking of the book, The Last Pagans of Iraq. Oh, yeah. Nabataean uh, agriculture. Mm. I managed to, to find it and read it. It's absolutely fascinating because they teach how to, to be a better farmer by using magic and astrology so yeah. mm -hmm. it is it is also for everyday life spe specifically for for medicine also but for other other purposes mm -hmm. as well uh, i mean you reminded me of something that i actually was reading yesterday so i'm working on as part of the Finland uh, project the erc project at uh, at the warbrook and the university catholic de levan i'm focusing on a very understudied text uh, attributed to, you know, the great scientist and alchemist Jabir ibn Hayyan. Um, um, and it's called Kitab al-Nukhab, the, the, the book of selections or the compendium. And it's about the science of talismans and doesn't contain instructions, but it's set up as um, uh, a teaching material for, for, for why the science of talisman works and why it is important. <laughs> and the the author goes as far as to say that um, talismans is uh, it, 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 making talismans is basically an artificial act imitating natural acts, <laughs> and he reaches that conclusion from the thought 
that when people saw processes like fermentation, like spontaneous generation, uh, when they saw natural processes taking place, that made them think of how we can use these processes for immediate benefits, for farming, for medicine, for, 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 for all kinds of useful things. And he goes as far as to say that magic and astrology were actually the vehicles and the conduits for science in the Islamic world because, um, because people saw natural things and needed to recreate them artificially. Yeah. And that that impulse yeah. is science. I mean, he calls that ilm and hikmah, science and wisdom. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, 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 to, to attribute our understanding of science, that 19th century understanding of science, to, to impose that, sorry, on the earlier material. We also lose sight of how science was conceptualized then. Absolutely. And the science conceptualized then um, accommodates physiognomy, divination, astrology, alchemy. Um, but we'd have to see it as much as we can because obviously we don't have access to the past in the way that we would like to but as much as possible just to open our minds to the, our lenses that we put on when we read uh, works on, on, on the occult sciences. Mm-hmm. Yes, I think we have, we have a, a 19th century... Uh, Still, yeah. Blockage there that needs to be uh, bypassed uh, quite intelligently so, so we can access uh, really a way of thinking and the way that all of these knowledges exist in a certain cultural and mindset that's completely different from our own. Mm. It's, yeah. it's, it's the, the, the old problem of the wretched sciences. So, so. <laughs> the, lo- <laughs> the, the losers on the war against uh, you know, uh, rationality. The enlightenment, the rationality. Yeah. <laughs> and enlightenment, yes. Uh, and, and it's true. It, uh, a lot of the a lot of the role of astrology, uh, for example, uh, needs to be understood in that context. And uh, for example, the other day I was uh, giving a lecture on on the use of astrology, and it's quite recent in historical terms. So, so I talk, was talking about 17th century, and even so, I needed I felt the need to clarify the audience because this was a public lecture. Um, mm. What? exactly are we talking about when we're talking about astrology in that specific period and people need to know that because if you if you if you present them with astrology if you just drop the word like astrology they will, they will ac- think of they will immediately uh, yeah. access what today is understood of astrology with all of the mental bias that comes with it uh, so they won't be able to understand why are we talking about these practices and validating a certain practice at a certain time and also, which doesn't have it doesn't exist today so it's we need to break that 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 mm. also they will put it in this binary frame like believing or not believing i believe this okay i don't believe this yeah. and it, it has nothing to do astrology was a way of describing the universe mm-hmm. and all the relations mm-hmm. between uh, people and uh, nature and 
animals and yeah. everything. So it was not about believing. Exactly. We don't uh, question ourselves if we believe in atoms or superstrings or other things or gravity. It's just something that we use as operational concepts. <laughs> yeah, exactly. For them, astrology was also a way of describing the universe. Mm -hmm. Of course, it has other uh, areas that are more connected to magic, but it's kind of a wild, yeah. wild, wild field. Yeah, but even okay. magic was a natural extension uh, of natural philosophy, said, as you were just explaining, of science like, and knowledge and natural philosophy. Like the so. natural understanding of nature and the ability to manipulate, I don't like the word, okay. but in lack of better word, to manipulate nature for a, yeah. certain, a certain purpose. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. And here we, we are again fighting against the 19th century. <laughs> Just to try to get to explain this properly. Uh, yeah, it's, it's really it's really essential to to ask these questions about um, the influence of 19th century um, you know paradigms. N not not to also not to risk making it sound like it's this homogenous thing the enlightenment or that the enlightenment is a period that begins a certain point and ends a certain point it, it, it that's not how i think about it um but that with you know these kind of uh ideas and binaries of the 19th century also carried with them implication of, on race implications on that were basically resulted from uh, colonialism and and these kind of binaries were used um to um categorize people mm -hmm. and 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 groups from the perspective of the colonizer a lot of the times um but but also people from beyond just the so-called West have agency in also taking those 19th century concepts and be part of um, the discourse on them nowadays. So when we are talking about post-enlightenment uh, values, they are still embedded in people so it's important to 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 get into conversation about that and what these paradigms also mean beyond the west mm -hmm, mm -hmm. instead of just saying western enlightenment the birth of reason is you know a western thing and then astrology and the practices of all of these things in the rest of the world fits within like a supernatural primitive mind yeah. um, I agree. and 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 a practice like astrology which is universal would have to be understood uh from from the perspectives of different people and even when we say things like i believe this and i don't believe that like what do we mean by i believe in this this also comes with a lot of baggage and the idea of um, emphasizing the ambiguity of these criteria is not to confuse people, but to actually be uh, to to help us um, negotiate what we take for granted on every day and understand them and understand their history. 
because I think when we do that, when we take that perspective of co-presence, as I mentioned earlier, what we end up emphasizing is um, acts, science, any engagement that we have in terms of its potentiality uh, for personal growth rather than just utilitarian scientific uh, uh, value. Yeah, uh, exactly. And also, what does technology mean to this person and why? Exactly. That's more important. It's, it's better to ask, why is someone, be it an astrologer, be it a practitioner of magic in the Middle Ages or now, it's more important to ask the question of, how come this person is negotiating these boundaries the way that they're doing that they're doing it rather than being dismissive of the fact that they're doing boundary work absolutely mm -hmm. yes mm -hmm. and even mm -hmm. when you emphasize the diversity of concepts uh, just out of curiosity we still we even have uh, cartesian astrologers which is kind of uh, there was this man, yeah, uh, Claude Gadrois, mm -hmm. and he was like a Cartesian astrologer. So, astrologer. So, he went out of his way to explain, to to explain. astrology in Cartesian terms. Yeah. It's kind of a very uh, complex. Mm -hmm. And, um, well, I, I can only interpret this as an expression of his love for astrology because. <laughs> <laughs> he was really trying to, you know, yeah. to fit yeah. astrology into the Cartesian mentality, which is completely the opposite, if we, if we think of it. Um, mm. just, just out of curiosity, as an example of diversity, and also as an example of the persistence mm -hmm. of astrological thought, and how we have it as a part of us, all of us. Exactly. Mm -hmm. I mean, you have the old school narrative saying, well, that's just remnants of a superstitious mind, you know. At some point, you know, people thought of viruses as demons, but now we know that viruses are viruses. And, but that way of thinking is, is, is not helpful for understanding the Cartesian astrologer. I'm concerned of understanding how come we, you know, at this day and age, there is an astrologer who identifies as Cartesian or a Cartesian who identifies as astrologer. That's valid. <laughs> and very yeah. interesting. <laughs> yeah. Why? What kind of negotiations are happening? Mm -hmm. uh, th that is, is fascinating and legitimate and important because it takes shape in this case with this explicit like astrology and, you know, <laughs> a Cartesian astrologer, but, but, but it manifests in our day-to-day -day life every from knocking on wood. Like, why do people knock on wood? Oh, remnants of a superstitious mind or medieval. And I, I don't think so. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's just, it's th there's something more. Mm -hmm. And that's what I am interested in personally and as an academic. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yes. Oh, yeah. So I think we, we could, we addressed some of the main points. I think we could stay here forever yeah. because I love talking to you. I do wanted to ask oh, you okay. about uh, <laughs> one of your projects that you were engaging, which was a translation of the Picatrix. Yes. <laughs> How is that going? <laughs> That's going really, really well. 
slower than what I would like and slower than <laughs> what a lot of people would like. But um, it doesn't help that I am obsessed with gathering as many manuscripts as I can of the of the of the work because um, uh, the Arabic edition by Helmut Ritter is is excellent, but the also the historical uh, situation that um, surrounded the production of the Arabic edition and the German translation by Martin Plaster and Helmut Ritter was all over the place mm -hmm. uh, because of. Uh, um, these scholars having to leave Germany because of Nazism and other uh, situations where the uh, Helmut Ritter and Martin Plessner had to travel around a lot. So, in fact, like if you read uh, some of the uh, the introductory material in these two translations, it's explained that the project of studying and and translating and editing the Picatrix was fraught with a lot of difficulties. Mm -hmm. uh, but um, the, the Arabic edition is, is really good, um, but I'm not relying on it. Mm -hmm. uh, um, I'm, I have more manuscripts, access to more manuscripts now than Helmut Ritter in the 20s and in the 30s. So <laughs> with that means <laughs> constant work because every time <laughs> um, yeah. to go back to, to the translation, but ultimately this makes for a better, more interesting uh, translation. But uh, it's happening soon. The idea is to submit manuscript by the end of this year. Having said that, I did say that I would submit a manuscript by the end of last year and the year. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I am sorry, it's just like Last month, I got two new manuscripts from, from Iran, so... <laughs> so what you said is that you would submit the manuscript by the end of the year, but you, you, you did didn't not say you don't, which You year. don't need to specify which year. <laughs> <laughs> it will be published. <laughs> you got it. Speaking of translations, and before we go, just one thing that um, I just... Um, I just thought about, uh, do you remember when we went to the British Library and uh, I had uh, a copy of this Libro Completo um, of Halibendragel uh, in uh, Old Castilian and you had a manuscript of the same book. In yeah. Arabic. And uh, we, in I don't know, in half an hour we spotted uh, some difficulties yeah. and a lot of mistranslations. So this is the importance of having someone mm -hmm. who is... Uh, Arab native speaker and mm -hmm. very well acquainted with the language of science, magic, astrology, because you can, just like this, you can spot all the incongruence or differences or errors mm -hmm. in yeah. this manuscript. So, um, yeah, I'm waiting for the Hayat al Akim. <laughs> and then I have a bunch of books that I can suggest. <laughs> <laughs> sure, but I have say that you know obviously be you know arabic being my mother tongue is is super uh, <laughs> helpful <laughs> but also i learned a lot from charles burnett from professor charles burnett this ability to um read parallel texts in different languages and just zoom in uh those little differences with with an eye not just to point out that there are differences and not with an 
with the eye of pointing out deviations, but rather asking the questions of why this word was used to translate that word. Uh, what was going on? Because as you know, practice of translation now, now has become a kind of exact science in a way that, you know, again, cannot be applied to translation in the medieval period and, and a pre-modern period in general. There's a whole history for the development of translation methods and translation studies. But like translation was a different process. Uh, there were uh, different incentives behind translating texts. There were different translators from different backgrounds. And so it, you know, I, studying under and working with Professor Charles Burnett has really uh, taught me how to use these philological skills to answer questions beyond just translation and transmission, mm -hmm. to answer questions like the ones that we talked about earlier in terms of, of boundary work. Um, why, why is that word, why is that term uh, chosen, spiritus, animus, anima, for ruh, nafs, things like that. And, and, and these terms carry with them a lot of cultural specifics, a lot of political agendas as well. Um, so that's why it's important actually to, to be able to look at, at these variations and not interpret them as a degeneration of text. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes, mm -hmm. yes, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I think this is one of the great um, contributions that Professor Charles Burnett has, is to keep, keep an open mind and keep asking questions of this kind. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Um, he doesn't settle with one. He, he keeps trying to understand mm -hmm. the reason. Yeah. Of this, of these variations or uh, changes or whatever you want to call them, it keeps trying to understand. So this is it requires a, a, a meticulous type of scholarship that I aspire to. Um, <laughs> you know, to 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 see so much in the choice of words in from Arabic to Latin, from Arabic to Hebrew, from Syriac to Arabic. You know, it's it's super exciting. Well, you have a lot of work in your future. Oh. <laughs> I think it. Uh, I'm, I'm, you know, it, it, I'm so lucky that you know, you know, I've 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 had a mentor like Professor Charles Burnett, who has consistently reminded me how fun and exciting doing this kind of thing at a time where academia can seem suffocating and the way that knowledge has been institutionalized feels oppressive um and even you know under covid when we are all apart we still have our reading room and you know he's he's someone who who really anchors me in that idea that you know I do what I do, he does what he does, you guys do what you do, because we love it. It's so mm -hmm. engaging. Absolutely. <laughs> it's just fun. Yeah. It is. <laughs> it is. I, I will say it's a passion of the mind, you know, it's a passion yeah. of the mind. Yeah. <laughs> and and we, 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 we really must not lose sight of, of the fact that manuscripts and books and texts that we read from the past had an entertaining value um, and these texts are a beautiful entertaining spectacle 
-hmm. and sometimes we have to engage with this material on a whimsical level and um reading you know things in a manuscript on the margins uh in like uh the pages that you know the blank pages that no one looks at because you know it's the end of text the page before the folio before but you know we look at you know these manuscripts as just like beautiful objects of whimsy and entertainment i mean i've i've read poetry on and excuse me on farts on manuscripts <laughs> on astrology and <laughs> <laughs> you have to translate that one. <laughs> I, did, I did. I mean, I think I'm going to mention it. Like, it was, you know, it's, it's wonderful to be able, like, to see these, like, pinholes into, into this kind of um, whimsy and, and not take them so seriously as that reveal something about the mind, you know, of, of an <laughs> man you know in, in 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 within the context of transmission within the context of just old philology you know there's there's a lot on offer when when we work with manuscripts and we are very privileged that we have access in manuscripts because you know I am in London and sadly you know a lot of these manuscripts are in what can be described as displaced archives mm -hmm. and and, you know, there's a huge advantage and privilege that, you know, I'm in London and I have, you know, the British Library nearby. I can go to Oxford and be there in an hour. I can be in Cambridge. I can be in the BNF in Paris. I can be in Leiden and look at these, these, these manuscripts. But the creation of a canon, uh, so to speak, from the perspective of science and religion in the West, has also meant that material and astrology and the occult sciences been stashed because they, they don't belong to that canon. And so, you know, that's why work with manuscripts is important because you're literally going into like the dark pits and taking out these manuscripts, kind of like the Emerald Tablet over mm. and over again. Exactly. You know, <laughs> it, <laughs> it really is when you go to a library and you just take this text on magic that you know have been stashed for a long time it is like that that crypt that hermetic crypt where you walk in and it's all dark and windy and there's no way to perceive Absolutely. it but the spirit the ruhaniya of her mistress magistus comes up and says you know just turn on the light cover it and then dig at the corner and there you will find the emerald tablet. We do that in a way. Yes, yeah. it's magic in itself. Yes. It is magic yeah. in itself. Yes. So, you know, yeah. and we agree, yeah. we do. Yeah, and, 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 and I also like, again, Professor Charles Burnett, you know, was instrumental in, in me recognizing that it is a hermetic quest, being an academic who's writing on science. Oh, I couldn't agree more. Mm -hmm. And it's such um such in so intensely fascinating that we just cannot stop. Yeah. <laughs> the other thing. Yeah. Okay. An eternal puzzle. Yes. The <laughs> <eternal> puzzle. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so I think I think we could stay we, here forever. Yes, we but could. we yeah. all <laughs>
<laughs> but, but it doesn't help that we're friends. Thank you very much for, for, for this conversation. It, it was, was fascinating. It was very, very good to talk to you about these things. And, 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 to, to, and to, you are yeah. welcome to return if you have like a manuscript, an idea, a talisman, something that you want to talk about. Yeah. And it doesn't have to be like a formal interview. It could be like 10 minutes. Just look at this. Yeah, it's a quarter of an hour. Yeah, you're so. very welcome. Just send us a message and you're welcome to return. Noted. Noted. For sure. Goodbye. Well, yes, and uh, thank well, thank you. you. Thank you for for being with us, and uh, best of luck with your with your translations and your research. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, and I'm sure we'll have more occasions to talk oh. more.